and I mean everybody was ready. I, I was the MC by this time, and we, they, when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! Never had I seen a person so flabbergasted, stunned, or shaken. Her mouth fell open, her legs seemed to buckle, her friend grabbed her to steady her, and we walked her over and sat her on a stool along the counter, and we all sang happy birthday as her eyes moistened. Then when, then when the birthday cake came out with all of the candles on it, she lost it. She literally started sobbing. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the cakes, Agnes. If you don't blow them out, I'm going to have to do it. And after what seemed like an endless time, he finally blew out the candle. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. And then without taking her eyes off of it, she said, look here, is it all right if we keep it, the cake a little longer? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and said, sure, it's, your, it's okay with me. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I, she asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home. Is that okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake as if it was the Holy Grail. We all just sat there and stood there motionless as she left. And when the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seemed more strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed. I prayed that God would bless her and be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice and said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those rare moments when just the right words come, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that actually accepts people for who they are and where they're at? Well, that's the kind of church that Jesus created. And when, if you don't believe me, all you need to do is read the first four books of the New Testament and you come away with Jesus reaching out and really caring for people who were struggling with issues in their lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that even the prostitutes were coming into the kingdom of God ahead of the moral people of his time. In Matthew chapter 21, it says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you uh, the way of righteousness but you didn't believe him but the tax collectors and prostitutes did and even after you saw this you did not repent and believe him today I'm going to turn and look at a life of a woman who was impacted by Jesus and as a result this one life impacted an entire community we pick up the story in John chapter 4 where we find Jesus talking to a woman struggling with a lot of issues in her life a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment have happened to her. And what begins like a superficial conversation turns into a life-changing moment. How do you know when you talk to Jesus, it could change your life? Jesus has a way of challenging the status quo, breaking into the places of pain into our lives. Regardless of the type of sin that traps us, Jesus is ready to set us free. Do you believe that? I believe that there's no sin so great that Jesus cannot help us overcome. I believe that there's a grace greater than our sin, a power greater than any addiction that we can be involved in. Jesus can set us free. The question we need to ask is, are we willing to get involved in the process? Are we willing to be God's instruments in our sin-broken world? You know, Hayden Robinson is a great communicator, and he teaches at a seminary, teaches preaching, and he shares this, that there's a kind of math that has originated in the counting rooms of hell. This kind of math is always interested in reaching the masses, but somehow never gets down to a man or to a woman. This kind of math always talks about winning the world for God, but doesn't think much about winning a neighbor for God. That math makes it heroic to cross oceans, but never cross the street. What Haddon Robinson is simply saying is we can be very idealistic about the gospel. We can talk about being missionaries, but the reality is, do you know Canada today is actually a great mission field? Do you know in the 1950s there were more people in church on Sundays than there were people at home? But that's not the case today. 
You know, number 70 years ago, we were sending a lot of missionaries around the world. Today, we are a mission field. There are parts of the world today, per capita, that have more Christians in them than we have in our own country. And you know what? We seem to be quite indifferent to the plight of people around us today. Even, you know, the people we work with, the people that live around us, the people we encounter in our day-to-day conversations. It's an amazing thing. Things and times have changed. What we need to rediscover is that when we focus on the needs of the individuals that God directs us to, we can often be instruments to impact our own community for Christ. That's the truth. Years ago, actually in 1985, we had a mentor friend of mine who came many times to our church. And, you know, he passed away here a number of years ago at the age of 82. He was still doing ministry. And uh, Jack shares a story, and I never forgot this. Can you imagine remembering a story since 1985? That just tells you that that story impacted my thinking. He tells the story of a woman who was a cocktail waitress in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She gave her life to Jesus Christ, and there was such an impact that happened within her. And people around her noticed it, so that when she came to her water baptismal service, she invited all of her family and friends to attend. And that night, as she shared her testimony, and as they baptized her in water, 32 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. You know, folks, I want to tell you something. When we touch the life of one person, we have no idea of the kind of ramifications and impact and influence that one life will have on other people's lives. You know, as we look at Jesus' approach to the woman, we can learn a number of things about reaching out to others. And the first is a need to reevaluate our own life's purpose. I'm going to ask the question tonight, what is your focus in life? What are we trying to accomplish? What are you trying to accomplish? What is your life all about? If life is only about our personal security, our personal comfort, or in our personal prosperity, then we'll literally stay behind, hid, stay safely hidden behind our self-made, culturally conditioned barriers. We'll live inside our comfort zones. Isn't that the truth? And, you know, a lot of people do that. Every single day. They don't want to be bothered. They don't want to be hassled. They don't want people intruding into their lives. But people who impact the lives of others have to reevaluate their own lives first. To reach out to others requires that we move outside our walls and barriers that we've created in order to protect us from entering into the pain of other people. You know why we do that? Because we get a little uncomfortable when we enter into other people's pain. Isn't that the truth? And if you want to be effective in touching people's lives, you have to enter into their pain. Jesus enters into people's pains. That's why he impacts people's lives. You know, we don't like getting involved because it's costly and it's inconvenient. You know, remember the story of the Good Samaritan. It cost him something, took time, cost him money. You know, got involved, it's messy. It gets messy getting involved in other people's lives. If we're gonna be effective in reaching out to others, the focus has to be on the other person. A number of years ago, Patty and I read this book called out of the box and it's basically a a book talking about how people are so self-focused and you can see it all the time you know you get into an airplane you know you see people get into the plane it's all about them they're totally locked into their own space their own world and you can see them come down they sit down they grab a paper they start reading the paper and there's a person right next to them maybe somebody's struggling to get a suitcase to put it up top you know and that other person is oblivious to the need right beside them how many have ever seen that You know, and Patty and I see that, you know, we have this little conversation, go, well, that person is basically living inside the box. And there's a, you know, I would say the majority of people are living inside the box. They never think beyond themselves. They're totally focused on their lives. But you know what? That kind of a life is a diminished life. That kind of life is a very small life. As a matter of fact, the reason why so many people are dissatisfied with life, the reason why so many people are walking around distressed, in despair, and I even believe depressed, is because so often they're focusing on a very small world, their own world. And one of the great ways of actually finding help for your own situation is to get outside of your own world and begin to connect with other people's worlds and begin to intersect with other people's pain. And all of a sudden, life takes on a different hue, a different stream of meaning and significance, even for our own lives. I think if we're going to be effective, uh, we have to reach beyond ourselves. And when we do reach beyond ourselves, we'll find life is far richer 
To remain contained within our comfort zones, as I've said already, diminishes us. It leaves our lives unfulfilled and dissatisfied. And what we're going to notice in the story is that Jesus now is going to break some of the social conventions of his day. In other words, he's going to do stuff that people would be going, <gasps> you know, it kind of, like, what's he doing? He shouldn't be doing that. And you know, he would get all kinds of gossip people talking because he's doing all the things we shouldn't be doing, right? Take a look at the story. John chapter 4, look down in verse 7. It picks up the story. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had already gone into town to buy food. That's a little thought that John adds for us to tell you. He's alone. Here's this woman there. The Samaritan woman says, now here, he, he is literally blowing her mind. Because we read here, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Then John gives us a little parenthetical thought, a little addition. It says, for the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. If you know anything about their history, it's almost like they're cousins. And sometimes the people we despise the most are the people who are the closest to us. You know, we have conflict, competition, intense rivalry. And that was true between the Jews and the Samaritans. They both thought they were right. And so Jewish people living in Galilee, going down to Judea, they had to go through Samaria. But you know what? Some of them were so, you know turned off by the Samaritan. There was so much prejudice against each other that Jews would literally cross the Jordan, go down uh, through the, a Gentile territory to go all the way down to Judea. They would just avoid going through Samaria. But look in the story here in John chapter 4, we read in verse 4, now he, speaking of Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Jesus felt a divine compulsion to go through Samaria. And it says when he came uh, to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jo Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which uh, John is telling us it was about noon. They, they, they added their time from, you know, the first hour was 7 a.m., the second hour is 8 a.m., so this was like noon. And how many know that being at the well, it's interesting, you know what? No one was supposed to be at the well at noon. If you actually go to a culture where women draw water, which I've seen in India, they go early in the morning. Why would they go early in the morning? It's cooler. Not only that, they like to get together. I notice women like to gather to get, get water. Why? Because they like to talk to each other. They like to tell each other how their kids are doing. They want to tell you all the latest news in town. And I'm sure a lot of gossip is flying during those little water meetings in the morning. But this woman was not going there in the early morning hours. She was avoiding that meeting there because I think she was part of their conversation there. Or maybe they gave her that look like, you know, what are you doing here? Or, you know, she just didn't feel like she fit in because she had become a social outcast in her own community. So she came in the heat of the day when nobody else was there because she wanted to be by herself. And here she comes, and Jesus is sitting there. Jesus, we, we read, he's weary from travel, he's thirsty, and he's hungry. This is not a convenient moment. How many have ever had those moments in life where you're tired and you're hungry and you really don't want to talk to anybody? You know what I'm talking about? This is not a convenient moment. But this woman shows up, and so Jesus says to her, would you please give me a drink of water? Amazing. And she's shocked that a Jewish man, first of all, two taboos are being broken here. Number one, in that culture and time, men did not just talk to strange women. And women did not talk to men. That was just a taboo. So Jesus already breaking one taboo. Next thing he's doing is that he's, he's a Jew. He's talking to a Samaritan. And so she's like shocked that he would even address her. You know, she would have expected he'd stayed at his side. He wouldn't have said anything. She would have stayed at her side, drawn her water, and left. But Jesus now is going to break all convention by doing this. You know, one reason why we're so ineffective in reaching out to others is that we're too busy with our own agendas. How many know that's true? We're in our own little box. We've got our own little agendas. We're living our own little life. And we can't see past ourselves. I want you to know if you're going to become like Jesus, you're going to become others-focused. You're going to begin to see people in their need. You're going to begin to see what's happening around you. You're going to begin to look at a broader circle. That's the most powerful thing that can happen to our lives. Our focus is going to change. You know, you can only be effective in touching other people's lives when your focus changes. And that's the truth. You know what our greatest uh, 
enemy to effectively touching others is personal indifference. How many have ever heard of Eli, uh, uh, Ellie Wilson? Ellie Wilson was, he's an author. He wrote the book Night. He was a, a Holocaust survivor. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Okay, this is a new person to you. Uh, anyways, Ellie uh, was um, a pretty well-known po- person. As a matter of fact, he was so well-known that in 1999, President Bill Clinton invited him to come to Washington to speak to him and his wife and to a whole bunch of people from the country. So this is not just any old person, you know. He's, he's somebody has something to say. And so Ellie's talking about the great problem in, in humanity, and he lists it in one word, indifference. And this is what he says about indifference. The root meaning of the word means no difference. Indifference means no difference. A strange and unnatural stage in which the lines blur between light and darkness, dusk and dawn, crime and punishment, cruelty and compassion, good and evil. And he said the consequences are simply indifference can be tempting more than that seductive. It is so much easier to look away from victims. It is so much easier to avoid rude interruptions to our work, our dreams, our hopes. It is, after all, awkward and troublesome to be involved in another person's pain and despair. Yet for the person who is indifferent, his or her neighbors in their mind are of no consequence. And therefore their lives are meaningless to the person who's indifferent. Their hidden or even visible anguish is of no interest. Indifference reduces the other person to an abstraction. Indifference, after all, is more dangerous than anger or hate. Anger at times can be creative. You can write a great poem out of anger. You can fight injustice because of anger. But indifference elicits no response. It's not a beginning, it's an end. And therefore, indifference is always the friend of the enemy. For it benefits the aggressor, never his victims, whose pain is magnified when he or she feels forgotten. The political prisoner in a cell, the hungry child, the homeless refugee, not to respond to their plight, not to relieve their solitude by offering them a spark of hope, is to exile them from human memory. And in denying their humanity, we betray our own humanity. You know what he was? This is a man who saw how people could be so cruel and mean in a concentration camp. And what he saw was a face called indifference. They just didn't care. I'm going to tell you something. That's so unlike Jesus. As a matter of fact, when I read a little earlier tonight, what did I say about Jesus as he's coming to this widow in Nain? It says he was touched. He cared about her pain. And that's why he did something. Jesus is not indifferent. And if I'm going to become like Jesus, I cannot be an indifferent person. Do you know when we think of sin, we always think about sin in something we do. You ever talk to the average person and you talk about sin, they go, well, I don't do that. I don't do this, right? I'm a good person. It's always, we always see sin as something we've committed. Can I tell you the greatest sin is not something you commit? As a matter of fact, There are two types of sins, if I can put them in categories. There's the sins of commission, the things we do, and then there are the sins of omission, the things that we don't do. And the only thing that's going to keep people from heaven is something they don't do. It's a sin of omission. You know what that is? That's trusting Christ. And I'm going to tell you something right now. For a lot of Christians, a lot of us feel very satisfied with their life because we think we're good Christians because of the things we're not doing. But the reality is there's a bunch of things we should be doing that we're not. And that's called the sin of omission that is even more grievous in the eyes of God. Let me give you an example. You know, there's a parable in the Bible that says that Jesus gave talents. Remember, five talents, two talents, and one talent. Remember that story? He says the guy that got five talents went out and he produced five more. The other, when, when the master came back, he says, what have you done with my talents? He says, here's five more. So he gave him back ten talents. Remember, the other guy that had two went out and recovered two more talents. So he gave him four back. Then there was the man that had the one talent. He had gone away and had dug a hole in the ground, buried the talent. Remember that story? And when he comes back, he gives you know, the Lord his one talent back and says, you know, I knew you were tough. And then... We have the words. And really the story is really a picture of our relationship with God has given to us and what have we done with what God has given to us. 
And what, is, what does the Lord say to the man who comes back and gives him one talent? Do you know what it says? He says, you wicked and lazy person. <laughs> now that's a very shocking statement. You said, well, this guy didn't do anything really bad. He just buried his talent. And yet God called him a wicked and lazy person. And he literally doesn't make heaven. That's a very shocking statement. And I think it should rattle our cage a little bit because what it's really saying is it's a wickedness to do nothing when we know we should be doing something. As a matter of fact, the Bible says for him to know to do good and you don't do it, that's sin. And so the sin of omission is a great problem in our, our culture. And it's not just being busy what I'm saying, it's being busy doing the right thing. It's being busy doing what the Father wants us to do. It's being concerned about our neighbor. It's, you know, loving God. And how do we love God? It's by loving people. And we move outside of our focus to focus on the people that are around us. That is so critical. So when we think of sin, we don't always think of sin in the right way. And then I ask the question, so what is your life purpose? Personal safety? Security, comfort, prosperity, or is it to bring glory to God? So you have to figure out why am I alive and what am I really trying to do? Listen to what Paul says when he's describing sin. For all have sinned and done what? Fallen short, come short of the glory of God. In other words, our target should be to bring glory to God with our lives. That should be the goal. And anything that does not bring glory to God is a sin. So if I'm not glorifying God in my life, I'm sinning against God. Isn't that what he's kind of saying here? I think that's what he's saying. Well, then we could say, well, pastor, their needs are so great in the world, where do we begin? I feel overwhelmed by the amount of, of need around me. There's people soliciting my help to do all kinds of stuff. Legitimate question. And I'm going to answer that question. Who do we reach out to? Does every need mean that I need to be involved? Well, let me just point out the second thing. We need to recognize divine opportunity. We need to recognize what God is leading us personally to be engaged in. And you know what? We've got to stop thinking we've got to win the world. And what we've got to start focusing in on is reaching one. Okay? How many see a big difference here? Because sometimes when we think we're going to try to win the world, we do nothing. But if we just focus on winning one person and concentrating on one person, I think we're going to be far more effective and far more successful in doing that one thing. I think God wants to see us, us to see needy people in the course of our busy lives. As I've already pointed out, Jesus is on the way, you know, up to back home to Galilee. He's tired on his trip. He's on a journey. And in the middle of his journey, he has an unstructured meeting. It wasn't part of his agenda but obviously it was a part of the Father's agenda. Isn't that great? And so often in our lives, we have those moments. You know, I find that happens with me a lot. When I'm taking a trip, I run into people. Because I think about my life, most of my life is, you know, I'm surrounded by Christians. I'm a pastor. You know, sure, I run into unsaved people. Yes, I do talk to unsaved people. But it's really amazing how often, you know, on a vacation, when I'm away from the church and I'm just relating to ordinary people, now I'm deemed to be an ordinary person, Right? And things start happening. And it's really funny. You know, over and over again, I I'm just was recollect, recollecting all the trips I've taken and some of the crazy things that have happened on my trip, like the time we went to Yellowstone. You know, I don't like camping, but we were camping. You know, what you do when you're married, right? You do things you wouldn't normally do. So we're camping out with my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law, and we're in Yellowstone, and, of course, you have these collective showers. You know, you're, you know you're, you're kind of feeling grubby, so you go down and take a shower, and I'm down there in the common area we're taking showers you know and I come out and I'm chatting with these guys in there and I find out that it just so happens that this man's wife had died on their vacation and his son was with him and they had you know had gone to a funeral home nearby and they had cremated her body and so they had the urn and they were taking her back home and this was the ending of their vacation what a negative end of a vacation right and so how many know that these people are hurting big time? And so I don't just walk around going, well, first of all, the fact that I'm engaged and find out about this just tells me that, you know, they must be hurting at a pretty high level to be telling a stranger what's happening in their life. But you know what I said to him? I said, hey, listen, you know, God cares about you guys. And he knows what's happening in your life. And, you know, I would love to pray with you. And they said, hey, you need to come to our RV because, you know, 
the daughter who was married to the guy's son was there and the mother had passed away. So I said, fine, I'll just go get my wife. And so I went over to her trailer and I tell my, my in-laws, I said, hey, I need to leave for a little bit. I'm gonna take Patty with me. We're going over to this RV. We're meeting with this family. They just lost, you know, their, the wife and their mother. And they go, don't you ever stop being a pastor? I go, it's not about being a pastor. It's about being concerned for people, you know. And so we got over there, knocked on the door. And here's this guy. I mean, they must have had a $300,000 unit, just amazing unit. Open the door. But all the money in the world is not going to satisfy the, the brokenness and the hurt inside of their soul. We go in. We sit down and chat with them. We pray with them. We minister to them. You know, that was a great opportunity. How many know that God decided to put me at the right moment to intersect with this family in their amazing need. But you know what? I could have just been busy doing my own thing, saying, I gotta get back, we're out you know, vacationing, right? I'm on vacation, I'm not the pastor. No, 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 no. We need to care for people. Now, do I always do this? No, I can tell you of another time when I totally messed up. I'm out down in Florida. You know, my brother-in-law's you know, re renovating pool tables, you know, setting them up, you know, putting them together, you know, that kind of stuff. We get to this house, and this guy comes to the door and goes, hi, my name's Fred, and I'm a three-time loser. That should have gave me a clue this guy was hurting. That's not usually how people introduce themselves. But I was so busy helping my brother-in-law, I didn't get a really a good chance to really sit down and talk to this guy and listen to his story. And what he was basically, I mean, he gave me a little bit of it, you know, that his, you know, three women had walked out of his life, and, you know, he was struggling. He was trying to figure out, you know, what's life all about. You know, I should have said to my brother-in-law, hey, listen, can you handle this table? I want to talk to Fred. But I didn't do that. I helped my brother-in-law fix a pool table. In eternity, which is more important, fixing a pool table or helping Fred? Obviously, helping Fred, right? So I'm not saying I'm doing this perfectly. What I'm saying to us is we better understand that God brings opportunities our way, and we need to share. And you know, if you don't think that these things are important or urgent, think of the story when I was flying back from visiting my brother in Las Vegas, and we're taking a circuitous route, and I'm by myself, Patty had taken Rachel to Vermont, and I'm just on a week vacation with my brother just to connect with him again. It was his 40th birthday. We're coming back, and here's these two people sitting next to me. One's a young woman, about 23, 24, and then it's her brother-in-law, and he's probably in his 40s. And we're riding along, and I find out, hey, you know what? These guys are coming back from New York, and they're coming back to Red Deer. Red Deer. I mean, what's the odds of that? Just sitting down next to them, right? And she's moving to Red Deer, and she's a young adult. So I'm trying to encourage her to build meaningful relationships in Red Deer with young people that know God. And so I give her my business card, and we talk about the church, I talk about young adults, talk about how exciting it is to be a part of a vibrant community of faith and connecting with right young people, right? How many think that's important? Friends you choose can have a big influence on your life. But you know, when she got to Red Deer, she made a decision not to connect with the church, not to come to church, not to connect with young adults, instead got involved with a bunch of young people who were abusing drugs and, and substitute, uh, substance abuse, and within a year, she was dead. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, because a year later, I get this phone call, and uh, this person, actually, I, I get an appointment made, and this person comes to my office and says, do you remember me? And to be honest, after two years, I didn't remember who this person was. And I said, well, no, refresh my memory. And he says, well, you were on a flight with us from New York to Calgary. I said, yeah, connect. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, I got it. He said, remember so-and-so? Uh, and he mentioned her name. I said, yeah. And he said, you know what was really tragic? I said, no. He said, she moved to Redder, got involved with the wrong people. She ended up moving to Lloyd Minister, and she overdosed on some drugs. I said, oh, my goodness. You know, my heart was just heartbroken at that moment. But he said, you know, in my own life right now, he said, my life is so broken, so messed up. My wife is leaving me. And he said, I almost blew my brains out today. But then I remembered... And I had your little card. And he said, something inside of me said, you need to phone that pastor. And he said, that's why I'm here today. And you know what happened? I had a chance to pray with him and lead him to Jesus. And he said, I'm going to try to make a go of my marriage now. I feel like I got some hope. And so what did he do? He, he said, I'm going to move back to New York. And so I said, hey, I know a great church you can attend. I know the pastor's wife personally. She's a professional counselor. I know that they'll be very interested in helping you put your marriage back together again. So I'm just telling you folks that God brings divine opportunities our way. We need to be aware of those things. Let me move on to the third point. We have to recognize those divine opportunities. I already showed you that Jesus obviously recognized that this was an amazing opportunity. Um, 
And the third point is simply a willingness to risk being misunderstood. Do you know, as Canadians, we like being polite. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that kind of our culture? You know, we let people get in front of us in line. We wait patiently in line. You know, a lot, a lot of times, I go to other cultures, they don't do that. It's a mad free-for-all. You know, I go, these are, these are not Canadians. Canadians would be not cutting in line like this, you know? I'm just telling you, that's, that's our culture. We don't want to offend anybody. We always want to be polite. But let me ask you a question. Is that always the loving thing to do? Think about what I'm saying. Being polite, is that always the loving thing to do? You know, we're so often not willing to risk being offensive. So we don't do anything. We don't say anything. And a lot of times, that could just be interpreted as we just are indifferent and we don't care. You know, there are moments in life, if you really love somebody, you have to take the risk to offend them. Sometimes you need to say things to people that they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Isn't that the truth? No, I think it's important how we say it. I don't, I'm not saying go out there and say all kinds of nasty things, you know, make people feel bad. I'm not suggesting you do that. What I'm saying is people need to hear the truth. And they need to hear the truth spoken in love. And we need to have the courage to do that. And I'm going to show you what Jesus did. You know, Jesus, you know, was willing to seem a little pushy. And some of us, we, we're just saying, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to seem pushy. Well, then you don't want to be like Jesus because sometimes he pushes the envelope. We're going to see that in a moment. Often the reason why we may not speak is that we don't know what to say. How many say that's my problem? Right there, Pastor. I don't know what to say. Anybody have that problem? I don't know what to say. I'm going to help you right now. I'm going to give you, this is Evangelism Lesson 101, how to share your faith with a person. You come up to them, you're listening. You know, I'm the kind of person, and, and you, can, you can ask my wife and you can ask other people, do you know, I must have on my forehead, do you have a problem? I care, please tell me. You know, I'm serious. And I can walk into stores, I can walk to clerks. You know, people have been with me, they go, how does this happen? It's because when I notice, I try to, you know, look at people and I can tell, like looking at somebody, you can tell when somebody's stressing, somebody's hurting, I say, hey, what's wrong? You know, when you ask in that tone of voice, all of a sudden they're looking at you like a total stranger, like, somebody's even noticed that I'm in pain? And I just say, you know what? I can tell that you're hurting right now. And the fact that you say it that way solicits uh, this person cares. Maybe they're safe to share with. And all of a sudden, they'll start opening up. They'll just start saying, you know, this was a really tough week. I just lost my mom. I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And you start sharing with them at their level. Now, how many know that you don't have to worry about what to say when you can share, you know, that you care about this person, you know? I'll just talk to somebody, and I'll just walk up, and eventually, as I listen to their story, and here's the secret. Most of us think we have to know what to say. Can I tell you what we need to learn how to do more? Listen. That is the most important thing. I'm going to tell you right now, if you will learn how to listen, if you will learn how to be focused on other people, look into their face, look into their eyes, listen to their body language, listen to what they're saying, you know, show concern to that person. By the way, should we be concerned about that person? Well, let me ask you a question. Is God concerned about that person? Sure he is. And so if God's concerned about him, I'm concerned about him. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter what they've done, it doesn't matter what they look like to me, God is concerned about that person. It's true, right? You know what? Here's the least you can do. You know what I say to people? Can I pray with you? And they'll say, well, I'm not really comfortable with that. I say, listen, I could pray with, I'm going to pray for you anyways. But right now, I sense you're really hurting. And I'll tell you something. If we pray right now, God's going to do a miracle. They're going to look at you. Really? And I'll just do it. Give me a hand. Okay. I'll just say, listen, let's pray. And I take them by the hand, and I start praying. And you know what starts happening? Tears start coming down. I'm serious. And you know what? Why do I take their hand? You say, that's very invasive. Yeah, it is. Think about this. How important is touch? What does touch say? I care. Now, think about what Jesus says. You lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. See, we think there's hocus-pocus magic in that. No, 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 no. You know, now we got things like Reiki out there. You know what people are starting to realize? People today are so insulated and isolated, they don't know if anybody cares for them anymore. You know, and I'm not talking about being inappropriate. You notice I just grabbed your hand? <laughs> We're not talking about fondling people. That's inappropriate. But, you know, if you take somebody by the hands, the fact that you're praying, you're looking in their eyes, and you're praying for them, I'm going to tell you something. People will open up. By the way, where is the presence of God today? Inside of us. When I touch that person, I understand Christ is touching that person. 
See, you have to see yourself differently. Most of us see, well, who am I? I'm going, no, I'm an ambassador. You're an ambassador. You represent Jesus Christ. Do you know when an ambassador works for a country, whatever they say when they're working under the auspices of their country, whatever they say, they're speaking for their entire nation. Do you know when you and I speak the words of Christ into people's lives, we are now an ambassador? That is an amazing thought. When I do what I do with people like that, I know I'm an ambassador, and I know I'm bringing God's presence into that situation. That's why people start breaking down. How many go, Pastor, you just helped me to start ministering to people? It's just that simple. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have all the words. What I'm telling you is listen, love them, care for them, pray for them. It's amazing what will start happening. You know, you'll get a chance to share with people big time. How many can see that already? See, you know, people don't care how much you know. We think we're going to have all the answers. We're the Bible answer man. That's not what we need to do. What we need to do is show care. And by the way, in this Canadian context, where people are bombarded with information, they don't even want any more information. They don't even want to be told by people what to do. What people want to know in this culture is, does anybody care about me? How many think I'm right? If you think I'm right, raise your hand. You think I'm right. People want to know you care. I think that's, what's, that's reality. And, you know, you start caring for people, you're going to have an amazing response from people. So right now, I've just commissioned you guys to be caregivers all over every person you come into contact with. Start looking at people differently. Start caring for them, and you are going to see amazing things start happening. Now, it's interesting what Jesus does. He says, give me something to drink. How many know that when you're asking for a favor, you're empowering the other person? How many know that's true? That's what's happening here. So he's not telling her, hey, I've got all the answers. You need me. He's saying to her, I need you. Isn't that a powerful thought? That's a different approach to people than you need to hear what I've got to say. No, I need something. I need to receive from you. We need to hear what their conversation is. Now, Jesus then shifts the conversation from the natural to the spiritual by creating a sense of common interest. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her. Now, the Samaritan woman, Jesus said, give, give me something to drink. Verse 8, she goes that little conversation. You know, and then in verse 10, Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him that he would give you living water. Oh, that's good. He's now shifting her from the water at the well to the water. And in John chapter 8, we're going to find out is the water, the living water is the presence of God. In other words, water represents a quenching of our physical thirst, but Jesus is not going to talk about a water that's going to quench her emotional, spiritual, psychological thirst. He's going to talk to her soul. The woman says to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? See, she's still locked into the water at the well, right? And... Then she goes on to say, Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Now see, she's a Samaritan. You have to understand where the Samaritans are coming from. They only believe in the first five books. And so the patriarchs are the most important people in the Samaritan theology and their understanding. So she's pulling, saying, Hey, this is an amazing well. Do you know the history of this well? This is where Jacob created this well. This is a big deal, Jesus. And Jesus is thinking, Yeah, but you should know who I am. I created Jacob. I created this well. It's bigger than what you think. But she doesn't know that yet. So Jesus now moves her on to another level. He says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. In other words, you'll always be satisfied. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Wow. Is that amazing? What a great offer. What a great promise. And then Jesus does something that you and I would probably say, oh, Jesus, you just blew it. You just offended her. You just pushed the envelope. You got a little pushy here, Jesus. Because then he says to the woman, so the lady says to him, okay, give me this water so I won't never get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he says, well, go call your husband and come back. Now, how many know Jesus knows things that most of us don't? But I'm going to shock you. In the natural, if you and I were at that well that day, 
we could have deduced very quickly there was something wrong with this woman. Why? Because no good woman would be at this well at 12 noon. And Jesus knew it. You don't have to be the son of God to figure things out. Do you know when people come to me, I can almost tell if they're going to make it in their marriage. You know, like people come to me and say, Pastor, will you do our wedding? You know, after talking to a couple for 60 minutes, I can tell if they're going to make it in their marriage or not. You go, what? I can tell that sometimes these couples don't even like each other. I can discover all kinds of things about them, and I can tell them how successful they'll be in their marriage in just 60 minutes. Because when you start working with people, you start learning things very quickly. You know, most of us, we just don't focus on other people. We just don't understand what's going on in people's lives. But we can. It's not that, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. How many go, I didn't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out this woman has some issues with people in her town to be here at noon, right? You don't have to be the son of God to figure that out. Jesus knew something was going on, but now he has a little edge, I'll, I'll admit. He knew something that you and I didn't know. And when she says, well, I don't have a husband, Jesus goes, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, now he does something that you and I just can't pull. He says, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. How many say that's a little bit pushy? How many would be comfortable saying, you know what, you've got a problem in your life, you've got to deal with it. Jesus did that. Can I just say something? Letting people stay in their sin is not a loving thing. Not addressing sin issues in people's lives is not a good thing. You know, if somebody has a drinking problem, just to pretend that they don't have a drinking problem is not a loving thing. I'm serious, guys. We feel uncomfortable confronting people about sin issues. Jesus, in love, feels very comfortable about dealing with sin issues because he knows that that's what's killing that person. And you and I need to be able to do that. You know, I've done it in my life. I've risked relationships because I said, you know what? If I really love this person, I need to tell them what they really need to hear right now because nobody else is saying it. And if they don't do something about it, they're going to destroy themselves and everybody around them. And I don't think it's a loving thing for me to pretend I don't understand or don't know what's going on. I don't think that's love. And so if I have to say something and I have to risk that relationship, then so be it, I'm going to do it. Because I believe that that's the, the tr faithful, the Bible says, are the wounds of a friend. There's a lot of false friends. A true friend says, this is what you need to hear, even though you don't want to hear it. But I'll tell you something, I'm still there for you. I'm there to help you. I'm not going to give up on you. Okay? Jesus is like that. We need to become like that. Do you know sharing the truth can bring people to a living and transforming faith? You know what the woman said? I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. And you know what? She didn't doubt it. She ran away from that well, ran back into town. Here's Jesus now. He's sitting there at the well. His disciples are showing back up on the scene. And they're, they come to Jesus, and they say to him, Rabbi, here, have something to eat. And Jesus now wants to teach these guys a very important lesson. And what does he say to them? I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they say to, they say to each other, who brought him food? You know, I didn't, did you see anybody here with Jesus? Well, maybe somebody slipped in when we were down in the village buying some bread or whatever, but he's already eaten. And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Do you know when we start fulfilling, um, sorry, when we start fulfilling God's purposes, our soul is renewed in the process. Do you know when you and I move outside the box, when you and I move into other people's lives, when you and I become others focused, when you and I begin to minister to people, when you and I get to see people's lives changed in front of us, it brings such amazing satisfaction in our own life. You think we were getting saved all over again. It is an amazing experience to actually be involved with people as their lives are being changed. There's nothing ex more exciting. I can tell you right now. That is as exciting as life gets because you're at a place where life is being created. And listen, if you want to hear about all the great miracles, as great as that miracle was of raising that little boy from the dead, you know that little boy grew up, right? The widow's son. And then he died again. But when someone comes to know Jesus Christ, they have eternal life. They will now go forever. 
It's not only a forever life. I've already said it's a quality of life that brings joy and peace in this life, but it's a forever life. Why don't we engage in the significant and satisfying aspect of life more? Why aren't we impacting our community? Often we are insensitive to God's opportunities. We keep telling ourselves, people aren't interested. People are not open. Okay, we tell ourselves that. I want to share a verse now in closing that actually changed my life. And actually a verse that God spoke into my life when I came to Red Deer. Here it comes. John 4.35 Do not say four months more and then the harvest. You see, don't think in a natural way. You know, when you're, when you're a farmer, you have to cultivate, you have to, you know, what do you call it? Uh, plow up the field or, you know, create, harrow the field so you can plant the seeds in it. And then you got to wait for the crop to grow and it takes about four months for it to grow and then you can actually harvest. Jesus says, don't think in the natural. He said it this way, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. You know what, I think at that moment, something was happening. The woman had ran back into town. The woman that nobody wanted to relate to. The woman came back into town and she said, listen, I've just found the Messiah. He's just, he is the Messiah. He told me everything about my life and you need to come and hear what he has to say. He'll tell you things about yourself that are going to blow you away. And she convinced her whole town to come and see Jesus. And while Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, look, the field is white and ready for harvest. I think the field he was looking at was a whole village now coming towards him. Is that an amazing picture? I think that's awesome. You know, if you and I would have went in there strategically to do evangelism, we would have never picked that woman as the key to reaching a community for Christ. You see, you and I have funny ideas. God knows the keys to reaching people. And sometimes God brings the right people our way that can change a whole community. So what was the result? For the woman at the well, the deepest needs in her soul were met. Like most people, what began as a concern to meet her physical needs became the means to meet her deeper spiritual needs. I've already pointed out, Jesus expresses what really satisfies the human heart is what pleases God by caring and touching the lives of others. Ultimately, what was the result of reaching out to this one hurting person? Her excitement brought a whole community to him. And then it says in verse 39, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his word, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Isn't that amazing? How many know knowing something is a lot different than experiencing it? Do you know, knowing about Jesus is not the same as following Jesus. I have a, I have a deep concern that a lot of people have an, you know, know who Jesus is, but the question I'm asking tonight is, are you following him? Knowing that we should tell others about Jesus is a lot different than actually doing it and enjoying and experiencing the joy of seeing lives positively impacted. Listen to these words last text I'm praying this morning I get up really early on Sunday mornings 5 a.m. I'm praying and as I'm praying and I'm reading my Bible and I know I'm preaching the sermon and I'm reviewing the sermon I'm thinking about it and I'm praying and I'm reading other texts of scripture because it's my own devotional time I read this verse listen to what it says do not take a purse he's, he's sending out the 70 now right to bring the good news to the people in Israel don't take a purse, a bag, or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. What is Jesus trying to teach us here? That we should not be prepared? That we should not, you know, be hospitable? Is that what he's trying to teach us? What do you think this verse is really saying? He's saying the need is so great, there's a sense of urgency. I don't want you just to come down the road and start rattling off to a bunch of your friends. I want you to get on with the business of bringing my kingdom to other people. And you know, sometimes we're so busy greeting people on the road that we have no sense of urgency about bringing the good news to others. I'm gonna confess to you, this, this wanes in my life. There are moments in my life where I have a deep sense of urgency that I need to bring this message to people. But many times, I get caught up with my own personal agendas, my own busy demands of my life, and I forget about others, about the sense of urgency 
of bringing this message to others. And I'm going to have a stand tonight as we close and just ask the question tonight, where are you at? You know, where are you at? Do you, do you have a sense of urgency about bringing this message of life and hope to people that are broken? And I'm going to tell you something. If you think all the people in Red Deer are close to the gospel, you're mistaken. And if you think all the people in Red Deer are doing really swell and their lives are great and there's really no need for Christ in their life because they have all the good things and all the toys and things are working for them, I want you to know that's not the truth. There are so many people in our city. You know, I had a guy come to me just this week and say, you know what, I can't believe what happened. I was abusing alcohol. And he said, I don't even remember doing this, but he became violent. And he's being charged. And now he's in a state of remorse. It's broken. Can that happen to people in our city? It's happening every single day. This is happening all the time, folks. People sometimes don't see their need until they are in a major crisis. Why do we not reach out to them before they get there? Or maybe we need to be there when the crisis hits because we're the neighbor that they know they can go talk to. This person I'd known for years, and so they knew they could come and tell me and knew I wouldn't condemn them. And, you know, they were so self-condemned. By the time they left my office, when they got there, it was so self-condemned. They said, this is the first moment in, 20, in 48 hours that I feel any measure of hope and peace. What am I saying to us? People are hurting. You and I can make a difference. And just with every head bowed tonight, let me ask the question. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I can honestly say, I don't, you know, I want to have a deeper sense of urgency. I want to get outside my own agenda, my own life, my own box. I want to be Christ, ambassador to a broken world. Is that you tonight? Just raise your hand. I'll pray with you tonight. Yeah, hands are going up all over the place. That's great. Now, let me ask a different question tonight. You're here, and you've never met Jesus. But as you heard about how Jesus does not hold our sin against us, he's a forgiving God. No matter how bad our sin is, the Bible says, though our sins may be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. I want you to know, Jesus is a great forgiver and a repairer of broken lives. And maybe you've never given your life to Christ, but tonight, God is speaking to your heart. If that's you, just raise your hand. I'll pray with you tonight. 